I want to encourage you to get your Bibles out and open them to the Old Testament book of Jonah, tucked toward the end of the Old Testament. While you're turning there, I want to review a little with you about Jonah and why it really matters. Uh, Jonah's story is so very important for us because it's the story of a man who ran from God, and that makes his story our story because all of us run from God at times. Now, running from God means we resist his will. We resist his commands in the Bible. Sometimes we resist his specific will for our lives. And this happens in a lot of different ways. Maybe it happens in our relationships. Maybe it happens in our finances. Maybe right now, you're here today and you are actually resisting God in every area of your life. Some of you, you were raised in church and you know the Bible and its stories and it's really not that you disagree or anything. You just don't want to live that way right now. You just want to do your own thing. Maybe your running is a little more covert than that, kind of a, a mental thing. You're, you're not sure even maybe that there is a God, but you do have a conscience. And so you find yourself living with tension because you find yourself violating even your own standards. You're not even living up to what you think is right and, and wrong. You have this sense of right and wrong and you suspect maybe it came from God but you're just pushing it down. Maybe you have done what a lot of us do, and that is where you turn your conscience volume down, and you do that by deciding not to believe in certain things. Because if you adjust your belief system enough, then eventually your conscience doesn't speak so loudly. But still, you find yourself back of your mind when things are quiet, when the music's off. Maybe it's just you and you're staring up at the ceiling. There's just something in you and you know that things aren't right. And if there is a God and you're not really sure sometimes, but you know if he's there, it's not right between you and him. And you know, you know that somewhere out there, someday there's going to be a day of reckoning. And I'm not even talking really so much right now about after this life, I mean even in this life. And as you look at your life, some of you know in your heart that you can't keep running because eventually you will hit a wall. Eventually the, the chaos you are creating is gonna get to the point where you cannot manage it and the pain that you're causing the people around you, whether it's your parents or, or your spouse or, or your kids, that's just gonna get to a boiling point and you're gonna have to surrender. And you know it's out there, but you don't wanna think about it. Some of you have actually planned the day of your surrender. You've decided you're going to run from God until you get married. And after you get married, then you'll settle down. Some of you, it's not even that long term. Some of you, you're just going to run until the summer's over because you got some things you want to do this summer and you know God wouldn't approve and so you're not going to talk to him about it. You haven't asked. Some of you are in business and you got deals that you're doing and there are parts of those deals you wouldn't want to have to explain to your kids and your husband or your wife has warned you about it, but you say, God, I'm going to do the deals, I'm going to do the deals and when it's done, then I'll come back. So kind of like this, you sort of like scheduled your surrender to God based on your circumstances, but you know in your heart that things aren't right. Whatever it is for you, maybe... Maybe you're learning what Jonah discovered, what we saw last week, that you can run from God, but you really cannot hide. You can't outrun God. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that we left Jonah pretty much as he was hitting the water. Uh, 
The sailors have thrown him overboard. He splashes into the sea. He begins to sink, and then the storm stops. And that's where we're going to pick it up. We're going to be starting with the last verse of chapter 1, verse 17, and we're going to read all the way through the end of of chapter 2. The word of the Lord says this, But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, but I with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now today's message is entitled Hitting Bottom because when we run from God, when we disobey Him, sooner or later we will hit bottom. And when we run, God pursues us immediately, but God allows us to keep running, sometimes for a long time, and we can keep it up, and we may go a very long way before we find ourselves at the end of ourselves, before we hit bottom. And we see Jonah right here. He is at the bottom. He's somewhere out in the Mediterranean Sea. He thinks that he is going to die. Now, what we're going to do today is work our way through this passage, and as we do, we're going to learn three things that we need to do when we hit bottom. Here's the first one. Go ahead and write this down. Give up. Give up and submit to God's sovereignty. Verse 17 again says, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Notice it says the Lord provided a fish. You you could translate this Hebrew word, the Lord appointed a fish. This is a word about sovereignty, God is in control of the wind. God is in control of the waves. And God is in control of all the fish. Sometimes this word was used of of a king appointing a messenger or, or appointing an ambassador. The scene, if you can kind of imagine it, goes sort of like this. God calls a fish. He says, hey, big fish. And the fish says, yes, Yahweh. God says, I want you to go pick up Jonah. Directions will be given to you on a need to know basis. And this is very important fish. Swallow, don't you. (laughs) I will tell you when and I will tell you where to drop him off. And the fish says, yes, Yahweh. Now, I talked some about the fish last week, and you can hear that if you listen to the message online if you weren't here. But I want to mention this again because I do understand that some people, maybe someone here today, you have some trouble with this part of the story. And maybe you're thinking right now, you know, Pastor Mike, 
I don't think I can swallow this story. Maybe you're saying, I just don't think that it's scientifically possible for a fish to swallow a man and to keep him alive for three days. Now, last week, I gave you my reasons for thinking that this actually happened. And if you weren't here, it kind of boils down to this. Whether or not a fish could do this or whether or not we know of a fish that could do this, the real question is, does God exist? Because if God exists and if he is the creator and if he created the entire universe, then it follows that it should not be too difficult for him to pull this off. Now, there's some people out there who mean well who try to prove that we know that a certain kind of fish or fishes could do this. There are other people who say you study the science and it is impossible. I would say if it isn't possible, maybe there's a species of fish we haven't discovered yet. Maybe the fish that swallowed Jonah is now extinct. Maybe, and this is actually where I tend to land, maybe God created a special edition fish, a locally sourced fish, and that fish was perfectly designed, precisely crafted to preserve and transport a rebellious prophet. Maybe, though, you hear all that and you still can't swallow it, and I want to say if that's where you are, that's okay. We're glad you're here because we want to be the kind of a church where no one has to pretend to believe anything. We, we do believe it's okay to wrestle with things. We do believe that God wants us to be honest with him. We do believe that God can actually work with that. And so I want to say to you, I hope you won't get stuck here. I hope that you won't miss the point of Jonah because the point of Jonah is not to prove that there really was a giant fish and that a human being could live in that fish for three days. Truthfully, it probably would take a miracle for such a fish to exist. But again, if God exists, then miracles are possible, right? If God exists and he's the creator, then he can do whatever he wants. The Bible says again and again that nothing is impossible for God. Maybe you think of it this way. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, which is actually right at the center, the heart, the core of our faith as Christ followers, don't you think that he can keep a guy in storage inside a fish for three days? Now come back to God's sovereignty. There's kind of an interesting theme throughout Jonah, and verse 17 highlights it. Maybe you've noticed it as you've been reading this book, and I would encourage you to keep reading this book as we work our way through it. We see this theme in the word great, which appears many times in Jonah. God sends Jonah to Nineveh, and it is a great city, and Jonah runs, but God sends a great wind, and it stirs up a great storm. And then the pagan sailors, they end up believing in God, and they have great fear, and now God appoints a great fish. In other words, God is at work. He is doing something great in this story. Now, God's greatness is being contrasted with what Jonah is doing, because Jonah is messing everything up. If the word great is associated and connected with God in this story, the main word connected with Jonah, especially in chapter one, is the word down. Did you notice? Now, the NIV doesn't show it, obviously, in every case. You can see it more clearly in a more literal translation. But what we see is this. Instead of going to Nineveh, as God commanded, Jonah goes down to the port city of Joppa. And then he gets on a ship, and the ship that he is taking is going down to Tarshish. And then Jonah himself goes down 
into the bowels of the ship to sleep. And then he goes down from there into a deep sleep. And when the sailors throw him overboard, he goes down into the sea. And as we're going to see today, he goes down even farther inside the fish. In other words, Jonah is hitting bottom. And what you need to see as we begin this story today is the only way to stop going down is to give up. Submit to God's sovereignty. Have you experienced this in your life that when we run, when you run, God does pretty much whatever it takes to get your attention? Anybody found that to be the case? More often than not, God uses circumstances to get our attention. That's what he's been doing here. God's already hurled a great wind at Jonah. He's already controlled the casting of lots to point at Jonah. When Jonah refuses to repent, God just turns the dial up on the storm even higher. The storm goes wilder and wilder, more and more violent. And then now in the most staggering, most mind-bending scene of all, God provides a great fish. You see, God is sovereignly controlling circumstances to bring Jonah to repentance, to get him to give up and get him to submit. And God will do that to you too. He will do whatever it takes to bring you to the place of submission. Why? Because he loves you. Because submission to him is the very best place you can be. So the question is, what is it going to take for Jonah? And as you think through this first chapter, I think we can say that Jonah could have turned around. He could have given up and submitted at any point. He could have turned around when he was on his way to Joppa. He didn't have to get on the ship. And once he was on the ship and the storm started, he could have repented there on the deck. He didn't have to be thrown overboard. Here's the question I want to ask you. What will it take for you? See, if you have hit bottom, how long are you going to stay there? If you are still on your way down and you haven't reached bottom, you don't have to reach bottom. You can stop now. You can turn around now. You can give up now. You can submit to God's sovereignty now. You can begin now to obey the Lord. Here's the second thing we need to do when we hit bottom. Call out. Call out and pray in humble desperation. See, Jonah has hit bottom, and he's inside this fish somewhere in the middle of the sea. So what does Jonah do while he's in the fish? Well, he prays. And if you could think of it this way, Jonah 2 is basically Jonah's journaling of what happened while he was in the fish. And we don't need to gloss over this. This was a very hard place to be. I read somebody who said one time that Jonah experienced the first air-conditioned submarine ride ever in history. That's not true. That's not what happened. This is a place of desperation, and Jonah makes it so clear. I mean, just imagine it. Try to put yourself into this scene. Imagine the horror of being out all by yourself in the open ocean, thinking, knowing you're going to drown. Imagine as you look around, you're trying to figure out what you're going to do. You're trying to find something to hold on to, maybe that'll keep you afloat, And you turn around and you look and you see a creature coming at you. And this creature is like as big as a bus. This creature is big enough to swallow you. I'm I'm kind of wondering if Jonah maybe fainted with fear. And if he did that, imagine waking up inside the fish. It smells horrible. Is there anybody here who's like a germaphobe? You know, my Purell people, you, you won't even touch a fish. I mean, and yet now you're inside the fish and there is stuff sloshing around. It's on you. It's touching you. 
Anyone here afraid of the dark? See, Jonah is in a place of utter, total darkness. You can't see anything. Anyone here claustrophobic? You don't like being held down. You don't want to be in a closed, a tight space. You get very, very anxious. We are told here that he's like wrapped up. It's, there's seaweed around his head. He talks about the roots of the trees. He's, he's rendered essentially immobile in this place. How many of you cannot swim very well? See, I, I, we've already talked about this. Jonah was a Hebrew. He lived in the desert. I'm pretty confident he never had any swim lessons. I told you before that they thought very differently in the ancient world than we do. Nobody wanted to live at the beach. The ocean was not a place of retreat and peace and joy and all those things that we think of. It was a place of mystery, of danger, of chaos. You didn't want to go there. It was not a good place. How many of you, even if you like the beach, your greatest fear is drowning? See, Jonah can't see. Jonah can't move. The smell is nauseating. There's water, I guess you call it that, and partially digested stuff that's sloshing all over him. It is an utterly hopeless situation. Listen to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 again. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You know what I think? I think that Jonah's gone an awful long time without honestly praying to God. God told him to go to Nineveh, but he went to Joppa. He didn't pray about going to Joppa. God told him to go east. He got on a ship headed west. He didn't pray about getting on the ship. Jonah wasn't talking to God at all, at least I don't think until he was laying there in the belly of a fish. And we see something very, very significant in verse two. I want you to make sure you don't miss it. Jonah says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. Isn't it true that for many of us, the first time we prayed in a very long time was in our distress? You were staring at a pregnancy test, sitting in the back seat of a police car, driving home to tell your parents something. Or you were staring at a phone knowing you had to call your wife and confess before she found out. Or you were driving in a car on your way home to tell your husband what you were afraid he had already discovered. In your distress, you called to the Lord. And suddenly, you were broken, you were found out, your back was against the wall, there was no place left to run. In your distress, you called. In our distress, we call to the Lord. And sometimes, we have to hit bottom to find ourselves in distress before we will call to the Lord. But this is so cool, I want to make sure you do not miss it. Jonas says, do you see it? And he answered me. And he answered me. Jonah actually repeats this in verse two. He says essentially the same thing two times. From the depths of the grave. In other words, he's on the verge of death. I called for help and you listened to my cry. God listens to the desperate cry for help from desperate people in desperate circumstances of their own making. That is so amazing. 
your father listens and responds to the desperate cry of desperate people in desperate circumstances that they caused. And this is so significant because one of the reasons that you find yourself hesitating to pray sometimes, I know this is true, is you find yourself thinking, I just don't deserve to have God listen to me. The way I've acted, the things I've done, how far and how long I've been away, there's no way that God will listen to me now. And Jonah is saying to you, and he's saying to somebody here today, right now I'm confident, Jonah is saying to you, that's okay. You can call out because our Father is full of grace. He's full of grace. This is so powerful. God always tells his children, come back. Surrender your will to mine. You can call on me. Look at verses three and four. Again, Jonah is confessing God's sovereignty. He says, you hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I I said, I have been banished from your sight. Now, did Jonah feel like God had lost sight of him? Yes. Had God? No. Do we sometimes feel like God has lost sight of us? Give me the answer. Has God? No. Never. Now, Jonah felt as if God could not see him. He felt that way, but he was wrong, and you are wrong when you feel that way. Sometimes we make choices, and our feet take us places, and our hearts develop attitudes, and we find ourselves thinking, God can't see me now. God's lost sight of me now. Maybe you've done some things you're ashamed of. Maybe you think God has forgotten you. You are wrong. God is always watching you. He is always caring for you. His love does not depend on your behavior. Anytime you are ready to give up and submit, anytime you are ready to call out in humble desperation, God is going to be there. You say, well, Pastor Mike, you just don't know what I've done. Listen, I've been a pastor for 30 years. I could probably guess. You know, the Bible says, that we all fall in many ways. In case you are not clear on this, I'll just tell you now, you are sitting in a room full of sinners. It's a great place for an amen there. You know, you put us all together and we have done it all. But here's the truth that Jonah's telling us. Our God chases after runners. He relentlessly pursues us. He doesn't give up. So make a note of this. No matter how low you get, you can always reach God. God can always reach you. You see, we need to learn out of God's grace the confidence that Jonah expresses, even in the midst of his distress. The second part of verse four, he says, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, remember, Jonah's not there yet. He is making this statement by faith, and we don't know what God has said to him, what God has done for him inside the fish But somehow, Jonah comes to the place where he's able to trust God is going to rescue me. Verses five and six. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. He's just continuing to describe how incredibly hard this was. He's at the point of death. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. Now, whether this is describing how he felt while he was sinking through the water or whether he's describing what he experienced inside the fish, we don't know, but it felt like death. He just went through some period of time where he didn't know 
what God was going to do. He didn't know whether or not God was going to rescue him. But at some point, he realized as he was praying, and this is the rest of verse 6, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. Now, this kind of raises an interesting question. Maybe you've wondered about this. At what point did Jonah repent? Was it like day two, or was it after you know, noon of day three, or did he repent late into the first night? I've heard some people say that they think it took him three days. That's why God left him in there so long. It could be, but I'm not, not so sure. I'm kind of wondering something else, because I find myself kind of thinking that Jonah repented when they went a one and a two. And then some guy said, wait, 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 do we throw him on the three or like after the three? And then they got to start it all over again. I think they, they hurled him into the air. And I think Jonah was repenting then. I think Jonah was saying, oh no, as he's flying through the air, getting ready to hit the water, God, I'll go to Nineveh. God, I'll go to Narnia. I'll go anywhere, God. Just... You know, I was a kid, um, my parents practiced spanking. Some of you experienced this, and uh, they did it appropriately. It wasn't uh, over any line, and so you don't need to send me an email. Um, I am aware that some of you have parents who abuse this form of discipline, and I'm really sorry for that. But my experience and testimony is I'm glad my parents did, and I know some of you are glad that your parents did, and and we wish that some of your parents had. But um, <laughs> like that's another story for another day. But, um, but my parents believed that one of the best things you could do for children is to help them learn to associate rebellion and pain. Because, friends, listen to me, rebellion leads to pain, always. And the earlier you learn that, the better. And so here's kind of the deal for me. Maybe this happened with you. I saw it sometimes with my kids. A lot of times when I disobeyed, like as soon as I saw my dad pull his belt out, like I was a new man. I repented right there. (laughs) I'm sorry, dad. I'll do it. I take it back. I'll eat the beans. I'll eat my sister's beans, whatever you want. I have repented. I've surrendered all. Anybody ever negotiate as a kid or your kids negotiate with you? It's like, dad, 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 uh, let let me say one thing. (laughs) And he'd say, what? (laughs) Uh, uh, Don't spank me. Um, That's like all I had. You know, and what I was trying to say was, dad, I I look at the belt. I have learned. I assure you, I have no need for pain. We're all good here. And you know what my dad would do? He'd spank me anyway. (laughs) Because my dad knew like our Heavenly Father knows, that sometimes discipline must be thorough to ensure that we don't run again. And in the same way, we can know as we read Jonah that our gracious, loving Father, He allows us to experience thorough discipline. God allowed Jonah to rattle around inside a fish for three long days and three long nights, probably because Jonah needed time to learn. And we're going to see as we keep going that Jonah still hasn't learned all he needs to learn. Verse 7 says, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. 
See, I think what's happening here is Jonah is coming to realize that what looked so incredibly horrible, what in the moment was so terribly painful, hitting bottom for him was in reality the very best thing that could have ever happened. Because hitting bottom brought him to repentance. Hitting bottom restored him to a relationship with God, to a relationship with his heavenly Father, so full of grace, so full of love. So again, I want to ask, are, are you ready? Are you ready to give up? Give up and submit. Are, are you ready to call out humble desperation? God is going to be there. He will hear your prayer. He will receive you back. Third thing we need to do, bow down and worship God alone. And I think in many ways this is the best part. It's like the pinnacle of the prayer. Verses 8 and 9 that really is describing for us the reality that every person running from God faces. Hear this, listen to this, don't miss it. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Here's the truth, whether you've ever thought about it like this or not. Whenever you run from God, you always are running to something. Do you understand that? Whenever you run from God, you're always clinging to something, and that something is an idol. Idols are not just statues of stone or wood. The Bible talks uh, not only about those kind of idols, but it talks about idols of the heart, Ezekiel 14, 3. And an idol really is anything that is taking the place of God in your life. An idol can even be a good thing, and this makes it kind of tricky sometimes. One good definition of idolatry is when we take a good thing and we turn it into a God thing. We make it an ultimate thing for us. See, an idol is anything that's more important to you than God. An idol is anything that draws and attracts your heart and your imagination more than God. An idol is anything you seek to give you what only God can give. And you can have an idol in many ways, in many shapes, in many forms. You can have an idol of success. You can have an idol of material possessions. Some of us, our idols are family. Some of you, it's your kids. Some of you, it's a relationship. Some of us have a a work idol. And there are lots of us, we have approval idols. Sometimes my race or my ethnic group can become an idol. And in America, a lot of people, many people, they make an idol out of their appearance or of their bodies. Now, for Jonah, it seems like he had an idol of national pride or ethnic prejudice. We're going to see more about that in the next couple of weeks. And he may have really kind of had an idol of self where he was really all about fundamentally just doing what he wanted to do, his will rather than God's will. But idols, you need to know as you try to understand what's going on in your life, many of them are not bad in themselves. But when we turn to them instead of God, when we look to them instead of God to give us what only God can give us, when we make them our functional saviors, they become idols. And Jonah tells us in that way they're worthless. Even when they are good in themselves, they cannot save us because they're not God. He he says also they're worthless because they cause us to forfeit the grace that could be ours. Now, this word grace is the Hebrew word hesed, and it's a beautiful word. You find it all across the Old Testament. It can be translated loving kindness 
or steadfast love or unfailing love. Sometimes it's kindness, sometimes it's mercy. It's just this word that's talking about God's goodness and God's faithfulness, which he wants to pour out on his children. Jonah is saying that everyone who runs from God, one day, sooner or later, you're going to find yourself in the place where you finally get what you were running for, and then you're going to realize this. What you've been pursuing is not worth what you traded it for. See, people who chase after idols traded a relationship with God for something that is worthless. Now, how do I know that this is true, that you'll come to that place? Here's how I know. We see it in Jonah's life. I know it because in your despair, in your despair, you do not, you will not cry out to that thing that you have been pursuing. You will cry out for God. You do not cry out for that person you've been pursuing. You do not cry out for that deal you pursued, that career you've been chasing, that relationship you were after, that standard of living that you long for. None of those things. In our despair, we cry out for God. Because when we hit the bottom, we discover the the most valuable thing about living is to know that God cares for me and God loves me and God is looking after me. It's just kind of unfortunate that so often it takes us hitting bottom before we figure that out. Well, whatever it is, it is a bad trade. Jonah sees that. Look what he says in verse 9. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. So Jonah, it seems, submits to God's sovereignty. He he sees that God loves him, that God only wants what is best for him. He calls out to God. God delivers him. But what happens next is like crazy. And don't forget, Jonah gets delivered on the third day. You know, the third day is kind of a big thing in a lot of Bible stories. A number of times, God rescued people in the Old Testament on the third day. And if you've read the Old Testament, you might find yourself thinking God is about to do something spectacular. You know, like send the angel Gabriel in dramatically or, or give Jonah a ride on a chariot of fire with all that music playing. You know, like in slow motion, that would be awesome. Or maybe you just beam him up out of the, the fish through a prayer. But that's not what happens. Verse 10 says, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Is it just me, or is that a little more detailed than we really want? I mean, this kind of seems like the eighth grade version of the Bible, right? But if you find yourself wondering why the English translators of the Bible don't choose a more dignified, more spiritual, like more churchy word than vomit, well, the answer is because in the original text, the Hebrew word that is used here is even more graphic than vomit. In fact, one commentator says this is a coarse word, And it is used in the Old Testament only in images that arouse disgust. In other words, the author is just hitting us over the head. He's bludgeoning us with this so that we will see the point. He really wants us to get what's happening. So he's telling us the great fish puked, barfed, hurled, ralphed, yacked, upchucked. This fish had a protein spill. It tossed its cookies. It blew chunks. It lost its lunch. It took a ride on the regurgitron. I'm just trying to help you understand the Bible. 
That's all I'm doing. You know, I did think that maybe I should have a further point for verse 10 and call it throw up to kind of go with the other points. Actually, I did think about this. I checked with a couple people. We decided not to use this title. This is a potential title for this message. I thought about calling this whole sermon, You Can't Keep a Good Man Down. What do you think? Well, Jonah ends up on the shore, but you need to see He's not there as this tragic figure covered in suffering. He's not there as this heroic figure covered with glory. He is a ridiculous figure, an absurd figure. He's covered with shrimp cocktail and sushi and California rolls and tuna tartare or whatever it is that great fish eat. Now we're going to see a little more of why in the next couple of weeks. And one of the things that maybe you've been discovering as you've read this story, as you get through this story and you read this story and you process this story, you you find a kind of a tension going on because Jonah is not really a hero like we think. He's not really a person you look up to, someone you want to try to be like. I mean, we, we learn from his example, but much of what we learn, it's not really positive, right? And I just wonder in the final analysis, maybe that's why Jonah is such an intriguing person because Jonah is so much like us. God's loved him, God's blessed him in so many ways, and yet he still runs, and yet he still keeps on disobeying. God says east, he goes west. I mean, he's a prophet for crying out loud. He, he, he knows God's the creator, yet he jumps on the ocean to get away from God. Even the pagan sailors think that's stupid. Even the pagan sailors see God's power and see God. Glory, and they give him worship before the prophet does. Jonah just keeps going down. God has to have Jonah thrown overboard, put him in a place where he thinks he's kind of drowned, but then God sends this fish to serve as sort of like ancient Uber or something, I don't know. And then to top it all off, the writer throws in a vomit scene. You know, if you were an ancient Hebrew, you would have read and interpreted Jonah's predicament as, as, as something as bad as it could possibly get. Ends up in the heart of the sea, in the depths of the grave, going down, going down, going down. But, but then it turns out that when human beings are going down, God is up to something great. See, from God's perspective, death and the grave and Sheol are not problems at all. Stiff-necked, rebellious, stubborn human beings are not problems at all. God just laughs at it all. I think that's part of why Jonah gets vomited onto the shore. It just reminds us that God is at work even when we're going down, even when we're doing everything we can to thwart his purpose, even when we're ridiculous. And don't miss this. Another reason why Jonah is such a joy to read, and maybe you've discovered this, is that there is another character that we see between every line in this book. Jonah, we are told in 2 Kings, is a prophet from a town called Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer was only a few miles away from another town named Nazareth. Can anyone think or remember a prophet who came from Nazareth? Jonah's asleep on a boat in a storm while everyone else around panics and they wake him up and the storm is stilled by his action. Can anyone else think of someone like that in the Bible? Jonah's name means the dove. It's a name that also means given to a beloved one. Does anyone remember anyone, someone, who went down into the water, who came up out of the water, all while a dove descended and a voice spoke from heaven saying, this is my 
beloved son. You know, toward the end of his life, Jesus said that he had one sign to give this sorry, messed up world. He called it the sign of Jonah. He said, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There comes that third day again. See, the message of Jonah is just this little foretaste of the victory that Jesus won for us, the victory that meets us. It meets us at the bottom. It meets us at the lowest places. This victory that meets us and tells us, tells us death loses, sin loses, sorrow loses, sadness loses, and joy wins, love wins, God wins. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? You see, God wins. He gets the last laugh. That's the story of Jonah. I want you to think about this. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you haven't. Because of persecution, the early church in Rome began meeting for worship in a place called the catacombs. You know what the catacombs were? They were tombs. They were underground burial places. Doesn't that seem like an odd place to try and grow a church? But they had to because of persecution. They had to be in a hidden place. You've heard the phrase, the underground church. This is where that phrase comes from. And we know today that the first art inspired by Jesus was not art that appeared in great cathedrals. It was not art in these gorgeous large frescoes. It was art etched on the walls of tombs in the hidden catacombs. And you know something? Do you know which Old Testament figure is found etched on the walls of these catacombs more than anyone else in the Old Testament, more than Abraham, the father of the faithful, more than Moses, the lawgiver, more than King David, the man after God's own heart. The the person you find more than any other character is Jonah. He was everywhere on these walls because they got it. They knew that deliverance was coming, that resurrection was coming, that the third day was coming. They knew that Jesus was all over this high and holy and strange book of Jonah. On Friday, I visited with two senior saints, members of our Southwinds family, who aren't going to be with us probably for very much longer. And one of the things that was so striking in those visits was the the calm and the peace and even the joy as these people come closer and closer to the end of their lives. And I was thinking about that as I've been reading and thinking about this chapter, about the hope that they have And I've been thinking about how the hope that Jonah found is actually our hope too. What if? What if when the dead in Christ shall rise? What if when disease and aging cease? What if when cancer and heart disease fall away? What if when AIDS and dementia are done, they've done their worst? What if we go all the way down into the grave and then we come back out on the other side? What if in that day life is so good, our healing and our redemption is so complete, our new bodies are so wonderful, the community of the saints is so rich, our fellowship with God is so sweet that we just look at each other and we say, this is what I was afraid of? I thought death was going to be awful. 
It's nothing at all. It's a joke. It has no power before God. It is just a door to everlasting life. See, that's the message of the book of Jonah. Jonah hits bottom. Jonah does his worst. And God, even there, God is greater than he ever before. And I just have to ask you, Southwinds, is there anybody here? You just need to give up today. You just need to submit to God's loving sovereignty. Is there anybody here? It's time. You've hit bottom, and maybe you've been down there, you know, rattling around at the bottom for a long time. Anybody here? It's time for you to call out, pray in humble desperation, and find out what Jonah found out, that God is going to be right there. Anybody here? It's time to stop running. It's time to bow down. It's time to worship God alone. He is good, and he is full of hesed. He is full of grace. He is full of mercy. His mercies are new every morning. His love is steadfast. It never fails. And so if you've been running, why don't you stop? Why don't you turn around? And I'm telling you, Jonah is telling you, when you do, you're going to find that God is right there. And he's going to welcome you back. He's going to tell you, come home. Come home. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father God, we invite you in this moment by your Holy Spirit to to speak to our hearts, Lord, to have freedom to work in our lives, Lord, on every row, Lord, in every seat, wherever you need to. Just tell us, speak to us. May we receive and hear what you have to say. Lord, help us to see that it's so foolish to run, so foolish to resist and rebel, so foolish to do it for so long. What is it we're afraid of? Lord, you're only pursuing us out of grace out of love. Lord, would you just cause anybody who's running to give up today and stop running? May they trust you and worship you alone. Lord, may we lay aside any idols in our lives, those things, Lord, that may seem good, but in the end, they only cause us to forfeit the grace you want to give us. Maybe you're here today and God is speaking to you and Maybe you've never yielded your life to Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you right now where you are, you can step over the line from doubt to belief. You can embrace Christ by faith as the only basis for your forgiveness. You can have your sins washed away. You can know the hope of eternal life. And if you have questions, you need to talk to somebody, we'd be so happy to help. Maybe you've follow Christ, but in some area of your life, you've been running and God's been pursuing, and maybe it's been that way a long time. Will you give up today? Will you say yes to him, whatever it is? Father, I pray, we pray that by your spirit, we would humble ourselves before you, and that we would listen to your voice, that we would stop running, and we would do what you tell us whatever that may be. We pray these things, Father, now in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ, the good name, the holy name, the strong name of Jesus and all God's people, all God's people together say, amen.